are listening to another episode of the Coach's Circle Podcast, brought to you by LifeCoachPath.com. Our goal is to explore all the different ways you can craft your own career in the fields of coaching, wellness, and mental health. Each episode features guests who offer an authentic perspective on their own unique career path and explores ways you might begin to craft your own. For more information on who we are and what we do, visit www.lifecoachpath.com. And now, here's your host, Brandon Baker. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. Today's special guest is Lynn Zachary. She is a licensed clinical social worker based in Skokie, Illinois, which is just outside of Chicago. Hey, Lynn, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to dive right in into uh, the, the wonderful work you're doing. Um, I know that you're involved in a lot of different uh, niches in the kind of therapy world. So yeah, just give us some background as to um, who you are and the work you do. Okay, thanks. Um, I am Lynn Zachary, as you said, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I did not even know what those four letters after my name meant um, until I was probably well into graduate school, LCSW. Um, I was a psychology major in college, just knowing I wanted to do something that helped people and what was I going to do. And then when it was time to graduate with my psych degree, I needed to figure out, well, what's next? Because going straight out of college with a psych degree didn't really get me too many options. And my mom was a teacher. I knew I didn't really want to be a teacher, um, but she would tell me that there was this person in her school called a school social worker. So I was intrigued by that. I liked the idea of having individual relationships with the students versus teaching them curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, but to be a school social worker, you needed the graduate degree in addition to something called a type 73. So it was this process. Um, but at 21 years old, you know, I had plenty of time to kind of just dive into that without thinking too much about it. So I maybe for a minute considered graduate school is for psychology, but because of this, I chose social work. Um, I decided I didn't want to be living at home and a full-time student the whole time I was in graduate school. I liked being away at college. Um, so I decided to do the part-time program and got, I must have sent out a thousand <laughs> resumes it felt <laughs> like in the Chicago area looking for something to do that would be within my career path, but also didn't require a master's degree. Right. And at the time, I don't know if this, like, I mean, presently, I don't know if this even exists. Um, if it would, if you would still be hireable with just quote unquote, just a bachelor's, which is a big deal in itself. Um, I was a foster family worker. Um, I got hired as a foster family worker with my bachelor's so that I could then go to graduate school part-time for my MSW, Masters of Social Work. Um, I worked with foster kids. I did a lot of driving them around, whether it was to visit their biological families. Mm -hmm. I visited with the foster families to make sure that things, to sort of be their support. 
um, and learned without any training the value of relationships. Um, how just somebody paying attention to them, whether it was the foster parents, the biological families, or the kids themselves, I was, I think, kind of important to them. I, you know, and I, they became important to me. I was this, you know, go-getter and loved hanging out with them. And they taught me all about music and how to be a cooler person <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So I, I did that. And then as the master's degree became the third final year, it's typically two years, but when you do full um, part-time, it's three years, I had to do some internships. So first did one in a hospital, but I did real smush together over a summer. But then the second one was done in a school. So I could then be qualified to call myself, you know, a potential school social worker if I were hired. Right. So did my second internship and um, got a job after that as a school social worker in the city of Chicago. And then after that, moved over to the suburbs of Chicago, where I stayed in one district for nine years, but didn't feel like my, I guess my heart was completely fulfilled. I loved what I did. I love my principals and teacher friends and the students and the families and the special education meetings, all of that. But I wanted to be more clinical. So I started doing a little bit of private practice on the side. And when you have the C in your letters, the clinical part, um, which takes two years post masters to get, like you have to take a big deal test to get it, um, then you can bill insurance. You can, I guess, start diagnosing right. in a way that's needed um, versus not being quote unquote clinical. So and that's all, I guess, more bureaucracy than Lynn Zachary driven. It's just what it was. I didn't, again, I was so young. I didn't think I just did. I followed the program. You're right. right. Um, yeah. And um, became, so started seeing a couple of clients on the side. I would see some people who, you know, just didn't have a lot of money to pay for therapy or um, just people that I, I wanted to work with to, to fill my need to do a little bit more and then loved it so much, became a mom along the way, um, wanted to have a little more flexibility in my life or so I thought, <laughs> and then I can get to my current <laughs> state, but um, wanted to be not bound by the school um, time frame of, you know, 7.30 in the morning till 4.30 in the afternoon mm -hmm. sometimes, as much as people think school hours are short. Um, that I decided to take the chance and just leave the school, leave the pension um, and just try and dive into full-time private practice. And I think that um, I'm really good at what I do. I don't say that about a lot of what I do, but I think I'm really good at what I do as a clinical social worker and have been really lucky that I've been able to keep a very full practice and work with clients that just keep me so interested and, and fulfilled that way. And to the point, you know, that cheesy old fashioned saying, if you love your job, you don't work a day in your life. There's that huge aspect of it for me. I really, really love what I do and love the people I work with and their trust and right. all of that. 
Um, but the downside of that is that, I'm sorry, it's my old fashioned landline <laughs> okay. in my office. No problem. Um, that the downside of that can be that it's me. I'm self-employed. I work by myself and I have a full practice. As I said, I have two teenagers at this point. I've been doing this for a while and I am responsible for, <laughs> I feel a sense no, I feel a sense of responsibility for people. I feel a sense of responsibility for my services provided that while I may be off the clock, it doesn't mean that my head is off the clock. You know, I'm thinking about sessions, I'm holding a lot of emotions and each year, you know, trying to work a little bit more on my own self-care and my own boundaries with it all, because it can get, it can get quite intense at times and, um, and worrisome, you know, it's not my job to worry about them, but when you develop those relationships, sometimes the worry is there. So, you know, I'm juggling the hats and being (laughs) the wife and the mom and the daughter and the sister and all those things at the same time. Right. That's my Absolutely. Um, no, yeah, you you did a wonderful job taking us through that that whole evolution. And I think a lot of listeners to the show that are in that same situation at varying stages of what you just explained would definitely sympathize a lot. I mean, there might be a lot of listeners who are in some kind of, you know, social work within a school capacity or maybe in a different type of institution that maybe are feeling some of that same, you know, they, they like what they do, but there might be something missing, some degree of dissatisfaction that they know that they can take their career to that next level. And so, um, and so, yeah, that's why I, I like to ask for that backstory, because I think it can be very relatable. You, you mentioned several times something that I, I really relate to a lot, which is that you said um, that you didn't want to necessarily get into teaching because it was the relationship with the students that you really treasured. And, um, I think, number one, it's great that you were able to recognize that, you know, I think that's a step that um, isn't necessarily a given that that step of, you know, recognizing that it's really the relationship that you love the most. And also beyond that, I think it's been shown time and time again, through through studies and, you know, real evidence has shown that it's really the relationship between client and therapist or client and coach that is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the client's um, progression, right? It's, I think, yeah, I think sometimes we get kind of caught up in this philosophy and like, you know, these, like you said, the, 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 the four letters after my name and the, um, the kind of the academic sometimes, um, because that is such an integral part of it as well. But really, it's not so much sometimes what is said in a session, it's more the, the trust, the rapport, the, the kind of, um, you know, being a confidant, that, that type of, um, element to the relationship is really sometimes what helps the client move forward. So I just always want to remind listeners that it's it's the relationship that's doing the work much more than you know the words necessarily that are being said. You're speaking my language. I when people say, "What kind of a therapist are you? Are you you know all those other letters CBT, DBT? You know, do you do you know cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. or you know all those?" I, my answer is probably not a very common one, but I say, I am the right, I am the kind of therapist that my client needs me to be in that session. And sometimes it's going to be skill-based and other times it's going to be a listener 
Other times I'm going to be a challenger. It's really exactly what you said. Um, you know, the relationship and the trust. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to also pick up on kind of the end part of your backstory where you talked about making the jump from being a social worker in a school setting to having your own private practice. And, you know, you've been in private practice now for, for 15 years, um, for over 15 years. So clearly you, you understand you were in the school setting for 10. So clearly you have an under, a, a deep understanding of both. I wanted to ask you a little bit more specifically, what were some of the, like really specifically, what were some of the challenges that you had to contend with jumping into private practice? And you kind of mentioned it already a little bit with, you know, all the responsibilities and you have to balance your life and your job and all that. Um, but if you can get maybe a little specific about what were some of those, what were some of the hardest things that maybe you weren't expecting about going into private practice, that kind of entrepreneurial jump that you made? Yeah, the the hardest part is, um, you know, you don't have sick days and you don't have vacation days and trying to figure out how you can count on a salary that doesn't exist. It's not a salary. You know, if you don't work, you don't get paid. And um, knowing that, my paycheck is not my client's concern and that if they're doing well, they're going to stop coming, which is celebratory. Right. Mm -hmm. But then it's uh, income loss. Right. So, so as you know, a social worker with our code of ethics and all of that, and I'm sure in several other professions as well, I just don't know their code of ethics. Um, that's, it is celebratory. It's called termination. There's a process for it. And it's knowing that as um, a self-employed person, it's about, you know, just sort of trusting that things work out the way they're supposed to with your practice and that clients keep coming and uh, excellent referral is worth so much, you know, mentally, emotionally, and also schedule-wise. Um, so that's that was probably the hardest thing to adjust to. Um, and, like having this worry of filling your time with clients. And then there's the self-taught marketing and business side of it and billing and um, insurance to cover your, mal your malpractice insurance. Mm -hmm. All of those sort of side things that, you know, you picture the couch and the chair and you're good to go. <laughs> Not quite <laughs> that simple, is it? Right. But it, there's a lot more to that. And NASW, National Association of Social Workers, has a code of ethics that applies to every social worker in the, you know, every type of social worker, whether they're in a hospital or working um, on social justice, whatever it is. So, you know, intuitively knowing what those rules are for myself, um, rules, ethics, however you want to phrase it intuitively knowing that and, and being guided by that, I think is also a big help for me. So that if something conflicts with my ethical compass, I know that I need to sort of take a step back and examine it. Right, right. Yeah. In other words, what you're saying is that the jump from being employed to private practice is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it is definitely it is it takes over your whole life. Um. And I mean, anybody listening who is considering making that jump should, you know, be well informed about 
the kind of, uh, you know, it, it can be jarring. The change can be very jarring. And you're going to find yourself thinking about things that you've never imagined having to think about before. Yeah. A quick yeah. lesson I learned is that if you're not responsive, you're not going to get that first appointment. When someone takes the plunge to call or email or however they reach out to you, they are probably checking in with a couple of people. And so to be, you know, committed to your downtime and your off tech time, but also really getting back to people and being a responsive person is really right. crucial, I think. Yeah, and that's where your kind of 24-7 comment that you made earlier plays in because work doesn't neatly fall within the confines of nine to five or whatever the case may be in whatever institution you were in. Um, you know, clients can contact you in the middle of the night. Uh, not that you have to respond in the middle of the night, but they are going to be contacting you at all times of the day. And it's kind of a challenge to organize that chaos into something that can resemble the structure that you had when you had a regular employed uh, job. And, you know, I, I'm cautious not to caricature the nature of, you know, nine to fives or just a regular yeah. type of job, yeah. because, you know, many of those jobs also have a lot of unpredictables. But um, definitely making that jump to private practice is going to introduce yet more of those unpredictabilities. Sure. And certainly compared to a school schedule, which is pretty yeah. solid. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so just transitioning a little bit into the specific work you're doing today in your practice, I noticed that, you know, you offer services for a lot of different types of um, challenges that your clients are facing. So, um, you know, I, I'm just reading a couple here, right? Depression, eating disorders, uh, parenting, PTSD, self-harm. Uh, you also work with teens, young adults, um, Adults, couples, groups. So you know you're you're clearly um, you're open to a wide variety of yeah. of clients, and so this is kind of a this I find to be a little bit more unique because um, I guess the hmm, I wouldn't say the major uh, a significant majority, but you know a, a good number of of therapists try to specialize and niche down, and this is kind of what you hear a lot where you don't want to be a generalist, you want to niche down clearly. That's not what you chose to do, and clearly it's been working for you. So I, I wanted to um, ask you about that. Did you consider sure. niching down, and um, how has it worked out for you choosing not to? Sure, no, it's a great question because I am always asked by colleagues, you know, what's your area of expertise? What's your specialty? And you know, I will often give a, a answer back of. You know, I do a lot of transition to college work or transition to adulthood work um, because about a good chunk of my practice is young adults. But <laughs> I, you know, I won't say no to a teenager that wants to be here. You know, that's really hard for me. I think I really appreciate that. And then, um, you know, I, I am, quote unquote, that adult now. Um, and I think that I did a really good job raising my kids, you know, the, my two strengths, I don't have more to brag about <laughs> good social worker, a good parent, but, um, those are two things that I take a lot of pride in. And so if I can share, um, you know, um, strategies for those things, then, um, I want to be able to do that. And it brings me a lot of, you know, sad, again, fulfillment, to see my clients grow and just, you know, change before my eyes. 
Um, I also think that part of me thinks this could be the social worker in me, but like, let's say I specialized in um, depression. Well, if I'm also seeing um, a good amount of young adult females, there's going to more often than not be some body image thinking, um, whether it's strictly, you know, eating disordered classified or more just, you know, it's something that contributes to their self-esteem, whatever way it is, I want to make sure that I am well-versed in diagnosing eating disorders to understand, is this a, is this just a minor little symptom or is this a big contributing factor to why there's no energy and there's depression feelings and because they're not sleeping, their body's starving for food. I want to be able to know all the little pieces of the puzzle to, to help me build my, my um, big umbrella, you know, so if whatever's driving it more. So I always am putting puzzle pieces together. And I've said, as I, as my practice grew, um, I stopped accepting insurance as an in-network provider. And I've said, as I've gone on, because I might be a little bit more expensive than others, I've said, if you want, you know, basic skills for anxiety, you know, how to breathe better, how to relax your body, how to, you know, be a little more mindful, those kind of things, you can go to anybody who is qualified and they've been taught that information or they can Google it themselves. And you're coming to me if you want to know why, 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 why is that continuing to happen despite my breathing, despite it all, I'm going to help figure it out because I'm intrigued myself. If, if we're checking all the boxes on your self-care and all that, and you've got your relationship, mm-hmm. why are you still having anxiety attacks? Right. I want to figure out why the heck are you still having anxiety attacks? Hmm. What's triggering that? So that's part of the reason why I might be seen more as a generalist. I, Cause all the whys don't fit under any box. Right, right. Yeah. And actually, that is kind of a theme that's been coming up a lot in the conversations that I've been having, where the mind is simply too complex to pin any one, uh, you know, presentation, any one challenge as one thing. Um, And this kind of is a a pushback against the kind of DSM uh, centered focus, which, you know, has its value. There's no doubt that traditional psychotherapy has its value. But I think what you're alluding to is that the mind is is uh, so complicated that no two situations are alike. So how can you really pin down um, one person's struggles to an acronym or, or just one diagnosis, yeah. right? It's it's probably a combination of a lot of things. And, um, and I think the fact that you've chosen to be more of a generalist points to that recognition on your end that, you know, why focus on just one thing when the mind is always going to be uh, kind of touching on all these different aspects. You just mentioned the body image issue as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the overarching message I think here to anybody listening is do what works for you. You know, um, there there's a lot of messaging out there that just talks about niching down, niching down. You have to focus. But it's it's not necessarily the case that you have to. There's very few have to's in the field of of coaching and therapy. I mean, there are some, especially in therapy, but uh, this is not one of them, I think. You know, you can, if you feel called to different groups of people or different groups of 
challenges and issues, then there's nothing stopping you from from approaching all of them. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate your, your perspective on that. I appreciate the therapists that have the niche. So if I get a referral for someone with OCD and um, they really want to work on that, I know how to do it. It's not my passion and my drive. It is definitely a specific kind of framework. I want to know who's doing that and who has room for that person. And I will be happy to refer out. Right, right. Perfect. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I think that was a really nice overview of of your work. Um, I, I want to give listeners a chance to check out uh, more about you and, and check out the work that you've been doing. So can you just share with us your website? And if you're on any kind of social media, um, I would be, I think listeners would definitely want to check that out as well. That's really nice and generous of you to offer. Thank you. I just had my website redone. Um, it was like a labor of love that started in January and ended during this whole pandemic time. So it's one of my pride moments. <laughs> um, I didn't do any of the coding myself, but I wrote every word and chose every image. So I am really proud of it. I mm -hmm. think it reflects who I am. And if you like my website, chances are we might be a good fit. My name is Lynn Zachary, and that's my website. L-Y-N-N-Z as in zebra, A-K-E-R-I as in igloo. And that's my website. I do have a LinkedIn. I have a Facebook page with Just Therapy. I'm sometimes quoted in some articles, so I just try and post those every once in a while. And I have a um, newsletter on my website that I maybe send out, you know, four times a year or whatever. So happy to have more subscribers on there too. It's always fun to see a new name. <laughs> perfect, perfect, Lynn. Yeah, um, I think you've been really open and, and honest with with your work. And I, I like that you said that you're only good at two things, your your social work and your parenting. <laughs> but you know what, if you have to pick two things, I think that's it, right? Um, yeah, right. Um, My I'm next one to work on is the life one. I gotta be. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? In a way, that kind of is the life one. If you combine those two things together, I think that that makes up a big chunk of it, at least. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I have I have two girls, um, and I I think that's pretty much the only two things I'm good at as well is being a dad and and the work I'm doing. So at least I hope so. So nice to be able to say that. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, Lynn. Thank you so much. And um, again, that's Lynn Zachary. Uh, licensed clinical social worker uh, in Skokie, Illinois. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. And uh, Lynn, best of luck to you. Thanks, Brandon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to our show just as much as we enjoyed making it. If you'd like to check out a complete listing of all of the episodes on our show, head on over to lifecoachpath.com slash podcast. See you on the next one.